You're listening to Zen Sandwich, a podcast for the independent mind and anyone who embraces life despite its absurdities. Join former attorney and professor turned Japanese papermaker Mark Reed each week as he talks with creative, inspiring, and influential people, or as he shares his own research to help make your world a little better today than it was yesterday. I am so fired up about my guest today because he he operates right in my wheelhouse. You'll see that in a second. Um, although I will concede up front that he's indeed the expert. Um, I guess the analogy would be like, I'm a pretty good basketball player, but I'm about to go one-on-one with Michael Jordan. Uh, oh. Chris, <laughs> no pressure. No, no pressure at all. Yeah. Chris Clues is the author of two books and is about to release his third. The titles will speak for themselves, and then we can jump right in. Before I mention them, as a way of a brief background, and this part is not my wheelhouse part, he was previously in corporate marketing for 20-plus years, building brands, cutting deals in the sports world on a big-time level, NCAA basketball, PGA, Major League Baseball. He parlayed that expertise with another expertise to become a successful and unique author and public speaker. So this, the first book is entitled, What 80s Pop Culture Teaches Us About Today's Workplace, Unexpected Business Lessons from 10 of the Great 80s Movies That Defined a Generation, Mixtape 1. And the second book, similarly, What 80s Pop Culture Teaches, teaches Us About Today's Workplace, 10 more iconic movies, even more totally awesome business lessons. He joins me now from Deerfield Beach, Florida. Welcome, Chris Clues. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me today. I really appreciate it, man. Uh, let me start by saying I, I actually did try to dress up for you today. Now, I don't have a like a Frankie Says Relax 80s T-shirt or something, you know, cool like that. So I, <laughs> so I, I like my Goonies shirt that I have yeah, right here. I love it. <laughs> but uh, so I improvised and here's how I improvise. I dress like what I feel like is what Billy Crystal or Gregory Hines would wear in Running Scared when they go to Key West and they're going to buy a bar before they ultimately realize like, hey, you know what? We're, we're Chicago cops. We're not, we're not Key West bar owners. So this is as close as I get to. I, I was thinking Weekend at Bernie's, but okay. That works. Was that in the 80s? <laughs> uh, I think it was actually 90. Everybody thinks of Weekend at Bernie's. I, I could be wrong there, but yeah. I am not the Michael Jordan of 80s pop culture, um, <laughs> but I could be wrong. It could be like 89, but I was right at the end of the decade, if not 1990. Okay. Uh, well, I want to was... also say, like, I want, I just want to thank you for the megaphone because we talked before we hopped on here mm. and uh, doing a podcast is a lot of work. People don't see, they just see the end result, but they don't see all the work that you do on the back end, all of the editing, the time that goes into um, creating the episode. So I, I know that work because of all the podcasts that I've been on and the fact that I've been asked Hey, you should, you know, you should do a podcast. Like I like to be the guest because yeah. <laughs> the, work, the hard work is on the back end. So I appreciate that. Hey, I appreciate the uh, acknowledgement. Back to the shirt. I was hearing Michael McDonald playing in the background as I oh, put this shirt. That's on. actually, yeah, that works too. <laughs> or Kokomo. Yeah, yeah. Okay. With that said, I do want to set up my first question by listing the 10 movies that you utilize in that first book. Um, okay. They are Ferris Bueller's, uh, The Goonies say anything clark griswold which isn't a movie title but we know is the vacation movies yeah. alex foley and beverly hills cop 
Back to the Future, E.T., Stand By Me, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, very interesting choice, and of course, The Breakfast Club, which I think was the catalyst that set you up on your current career path, if I'm not mistaken. It oh, is, yeah. Okay. It's one of two, yep. Here's my question. How could you, how did you possibly pick just those 10 movies? And what I mean is, surely as you're doing your research more and more, like for example, when I was thinking about Alex Foley uh, from Beverly Hills Cop, that led me to 48 Hours with Nick Nolte, that, which led me to Trading Places. I mean, at some point, you got to start thinking, I could do a whole book on 80s Eddie Murphy movies. And it doesn't have to be him. It could be John Cusack, Molly Ringwald. You get my point. This is a rabbit hole you're going down. How do yeah. you pick these? How do you pick these 10? Yeah, and it's uh, um, Axel Foley. Oh, yeah, I, I, did, to sound I like... Uh, Oh, gosh. oh, sorry, man. He's like, yeah. he's like, Aquel, Aquel, Axel. So, yeah, that's a, that's actually, um, it is a, it is a rabbit hole. And I'm glad you mentioned Trading Places because Trading Places is actually in my third book that's coming out here nice. uh, in late September, uh, which actually focuses on life lessons raised on the 80s. And it focuses on life lessons instead of business lessons. So I went even deeper into a, a different rabbit hole uh, and a broader topic in terms of life. So I actually, uh, I didn't have a plan when I did this, when I wrote this first book, uh, mm -hmm. it was really something that, as you said, the breakfast club. So I'll take you back to kind of how this evolved for me. And then we'll get into how I picked those movies and how I picked those 10. Mm -hmm. So I was, uh, I was in corporate marketing for 20 plus years. And at the time I was in a job that I just wasn't digging. I think we've all kind of been there and, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I thought, you know, if I keep going down this path, is my tombstone going to say he was a pretty good marketing guy? Mm. And was that enough for me? Right. Uh, because I believe this is not 80s pop culture, but I believe it was Oliver Wendell Holmes who said something about, you know, the, the most tragic thing is, and I'm paraphrasing here, is when someone dies with their song still inside of them. Mm. And, um, you know, Henry David Thoreau said the mass of men, we'll call that the mass of people, lead lives of quiet desperation. Right. And I kind of felt that. So I was thinking, what am I going to do? I can't just kind of walk away from my career. And I was having a self-pity party of one, laying on the couch, <laughs> uh, watching The Breakfast Club. Right. And Bender says, screws fall out all the time. The world's an imperfect place. And of all the lines in The Breakfast Club and the hundreds of times that I'd watched that movie, I never really caught that line. I mean, I mm. heard it, but I didn't hear it. Right. And this time I did. And uh, it resonated. And I thought my screws have fallen out. What am I going to do to put them back in? Am I just going to put those same screws back in and keep going down that path that I've already been going down? That's making me, you know, kind of like not super happy. Or am I going to get a new set of screws and a whole new door and go out to an entirely new journey? Yeah. And uh, that's what I decided to do. And ultimately the outsiders was another one where Johnny Cade says, uh, you still have a lot of time to make yourself be what you want. And I was 46, 47 years old when I decided to make this leap of faith and uh, wasn't a 25 year old entrepreneur, but I did recognize that I still had a lot of time to make myself be what I want. And so those were the two that really kind of created this um, opportunity in my mind. And then it was, what do I do with it? And mm -hmm. so I wrote this article on, the, on what the Breakfast Club teaches us about problem solving. And I put it out on LinkedIn and all of these people responded to it from all over the world. It was a really, it was really interesting. People thought it was a cool idea. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to run with this. And uh, I, I created one on Ferris Bueller and work-life balance. And I, I kind of went from there. So awesome. um, yeah. I, I, I can relate on two levels uh, immediately. 
one, uh, we, the reason I even know who you are is, uh, we actually were on the same, uh, other podcast bucket list careers because I, I too made a pivot similarly, you know, I, I was an attorney and I, I just, same, almost the same. I was just like, is that going to be my legacy? Not that I cared that much about legacy, but I just thought, is that going to be at the end of my life? Am I just going to say, I was a, I was a pretty good attorney, you know, or am I going to like say, you know what, let's do, let's, let's mix it up. Let's, uh, let's live the second half. There's a saying, and I don't know who does, who says it, but it's something like, uh, you know, you, you live two lives, like the first one. And then the, the second one, when you realize like you're going to die or something like that. It, it, anyway, I just, I changed, uh, you know, that was my um, midlife crisis, so to speak. I didn't buy a, a fancy car. I just, I left yeah. being a lawyer. Yeah. And, go uh, American beauty on us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, the second thing I can relate to is the outsiders, but in a different way, I had a different inspiration. I was in the play, the outsiders in high school. I played two bit, which is Emilio Estevez's character. Yeah. And so uh, that actually kind of influenced I don't know, my goofy personality or something for, <laughs> for the rest of my life. So. You know, it's funny you mentioned that on um, The Outsiders really quickly. Uh, w- one thing I love about pop culture, I mean, obviously I love 80s pop culture, but one of the things I really love about pop culture is how it impacts generation after generation. And a great example of that is The Outsiders. So here's a book that's written by S.C. E. Hinton right. in 66 or 67. She's a 16 year old high school student. I mean, I was perfecting the perfect spitball and she's writing the great American novel. So you see like the difference is in individuals. It's what makes us great, right? All of us individuals together. So she, uh, she wrote the outsiders at 16 years old or so in the late sixties. And then 83 comes along and, and it's, you know, a, a movie, right. With all, and it launches all of these amazing um, careers. If you right. think about all of the guys that were in that movie my favorite, Patrick, Patrick Swayze, Swayze, Tom Cruise. Uh, I mean, people, Estevez, Matt Dillon, Ralph Macchio, C. Thomas Howe. I mean, you yeah. just have this amazing cast of, uh, of uh, characters yeah. and, um, and, you know, I, I'm a huge Patrick Swayze fan, but so the outsiders early eighties, right. The movie comes out and then there's this guy named Danny Boy O'Connor. And if you're familiar with um, hip hop in the early nineties, he was uh, one of the lead rappers or the founding member of house of pain. Okay. The jump around. I remember jump, the jump around song. Huge yeah. song. Huge. Yeah. <laughs> so Danny Boy O'Connor uh, falls in love with the outsiders as a kid. And he actually moves to Tulsa, Oklahoma, because he saw that the move, the house from the movie right. was in disarray and he wanted to restore it. So wow. he restores the, the house and turns it into the outsiders house museum dedicated to the outsiders house movie and some other pop culture, but mainly the outsiders uh, movie and book. And it opened in 2019 and it's amazing. And so you have recently had Leonardo DiCaprio there. The Dropkick Murphys just did a photo shoot there on the porch. C. Thomas Howe is, is there often. A lot of, a lot of big celebrities stop by. Um, C. Thomas Howe does concerts there, plays guitar. It's pretty cool. So here is this connection, right? From the 60s all the way to 2022, you have the book written in the 60s, the movie in the early 80s, uh, a rapper from the, from the early 90s and mid 90s then mm. restores the house into a turn, turns it into a museum dedicated to the movie in 2019. I mean, that's, oh, that's amazing. That's what's great about pop culture. Yeah, I agree with you. Hey, uh, um, and I, you know, I want to talk eighties, but give us an example of a business lesson. How, how do you extract a business lesson? Like from that first book, yeah. you, uh, a small spoiler, like how do you get a business lesson from one of those books? Give us an example. 
Yeah. So it's really interesting how it kind of unfolds. I, you asked about picking the movies and so I'm, we're kind of coming back to that, which is great. So picking the movies, um, really what I do is uh, I think about all the movies that I enjoyed. And then I honestly, I go to IMDb and I go to the quotes from the movie and I just start looking at the quotes and thinking uh, about those quotes in the context of the movie. Hmm. And then a, a quote will jump out at me and I don't really know how, honestly, it just connects with me. And I think that's a quote that I could use for a life lesson or for a business lesson. I could build something around that particular quote. I got you. And that's really how it unfolds. And then once I've established that I'm going to use that quote, then I start thinking about what, what does it actually teach us? And how can I create a story around it, whether it's a life lesson or a work lesson, how do I create a story around it? And then as I evolved in my books, it wasn't just about that quote in that movie, but it was about that time frame. So if the movie came out in June of 1986, I would tell a story about all the pop culture in June of 1986. I would actually tell a story about myself, what was happening with me in my life, usually self-deprecating because I'm easy to make fun of. So I tell fun, funny stories about ridiculous stuff I was doing at that time. Then we get into the actual movie and the lesson. Hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about the second book. First of all, I love that you weave in these kind of fun facts in the second mm -hmm. one, uh, like uh, the Jetsons predicted yeah. Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week. Like, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Uh, let me just read off those ten movies, which, in my opinion, was maybe even a. A better list. Uh, I mean, the, the first list was terrific, but I, I love the second list as well. So the outsiders is, uh, I think leads us off there. Um, we just talked about the prince's bride. You can't get much better than that. Caddyshack fast times at Richmond high, the lost boys coming to America. Let me just pause here with some personal gratitude for the next inclusion better off dead. I, I in my opinion is not recognized enough, like as a, as a uh, just a classic, a classic. I watched that movie a hundred times when I was a kid. I could I could watch it now and quote that movie. Uh, so I'm so glad you put that in the book. I love uh, the movie. Yes, and Diane we, Franklin wrote the foreword for the second book, who was Monique and Better Off Dead. Oh, you've got to so, be kidding! Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, I had such She's a awesome, by the way. I had such a crush on Monique. Trust me. I did too. It was pretty <laughs> surreal having her write the foreword and thinking about. Yeah, I had a crush on her as well. And she's, she's really awesome. She's a really awesome human. Yeah. That's terrific. Uh, weird science, Ghostbusters, and then The Karate Kid, which, you know, you might already guess that's the movie that uh, yeah. has an influence on why I live in Japan right now. <laughs> yes. but I'll, th I'll throw it back to you. Um, so give us, a, give us an example of a lesson we can glean from one of those. Yeah, okay. So uh, I'll do two, two, because we want to get to, to Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid. And I think there's a real, I mean, obviously, almost every line that he uttered had a lesson in it. Um, and, and, and is one of the great characters in cinematic history, in my opinion, for a number of reasons. Yeah. But I want to touch um, quickly on coming to America. Mm. Um, coming to America is a great example of looking at quotes from a movie that is uh, a fantastic romantic comedy. People forget, like they think Eddie Murphy and they think it's just like, you know, funny. Right. And of course it is. But it's a romantic comedy. Um, it's a rom-com. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of the best, uh, in my opinion. It's, it's yeah. a top three rom-com for me. So uh, you have Eddie Murphy playing Prince Akeem. And Prince Akeem is a character that I would say is number one in my book in terms of teaching us leadership lessons in 80s movies and maybe in of all time. Hmm. And I think back to, you know, here's this guy 
who uh, could easily just be the prince in his country of Zamunda and life would be great. And everybody would take care of him and throw rose petals at his feet. Right. And he wants more than that. And we see that at the beginning of the movie when he's kind of being set up on this arranged marriage. And he says, I, this isn't what I want. You know, I really, I want somebody to love me for me. I want somebody to like me for me. I want people to like me for me. I don't want to be coddled and taken care of like this. And so that's where, why they end up in Queens, New York. He says it might be the best place to find his queen. I, we, could, we could have that conversation, but, um, <laughs> but that's, what he, that's what he says. Right. So they end up, he and Semi end up in, uh, in, in uh, Queens. And he takes this, this entry-level job at a fast food restaurant, McDowell's. And there's this line that jumped out at me. Again, one of those lines that you just kind of pass by in the movie. And he says, he, he's, he's in his McDowell's outfit. He's got the mop. And he says, when you think of garbage, think of Akeem. <laughs> Now, this is a throwaway line for, for the most part in that movie, but it really resonated with me. And why did it resonate? Because here's this guy who is the prince of his country in Zamunda, of country of Zamunda, right? Mm. And he stripped all of that away. He doesn't want people to know that. He wants people to like him, as I said, like him for him and appreciate him for who he is as a human being without knowing that he's a prince. Right. And so, you know, when you think of garbage, think of a king. This is a real lesson in leadership. And it teaches us a valuable lesson about how unearned leadership creates pleasers and earned leadership creates believers. Hmm. And what I mean by that is when we see him as the prince, he didn't earn that position. It was just given to him. It was his, you know, his birthright. Right. And so everybody just wants to please him because he doesn't know how to act as a leader. He hasn't, he hasn't grown into that leadership role. It's been given to him. He doesn't know how to act as a leader. And then people around him, they don't know how to act either. So everybody just kind of wants to please him. And they think this is the way and, and most leaders who haven't earned their position enjoy that. That's where we hear yes men, yes women, yes people, right? This unearned mm -hmm. leadership creates pleasers. Earned leadership creates believers. And we see this. Once people find out he's a prince and they get past the fact, she gets past the fact, Lisa, that she's upset that he wasn't truthful with her. Um, and once everybody kind of gets past that piece of it, they have respect for him. Mm -hmm. He has credibility. And now he goes back to his home country and everything changes. People respect him as a leader in a completely different way, the way they should kind of offer respect to a leader because leaders who have earned their leadership position, they like to be questioned. They like to be challenged. That's part of being a leader. That's part of leadership. And when you earn that position, mm -hmm. that's what you want from the people who are around you. And I think there's a really valuable lesson in that simple line. When you think yeah. of garbage, think of Akeem. That's awesome. Humble uh, leadership, humbly humility in the people who do things like the great people who do things better than anybody else. Unfortunately, humility is the rarest quality in those people. And we need more of that. Yeah, uh, he's definitely an admir admirable character when yeah. you watch that movie. I mean, you sort of want to be like him, you know. Totally. Uh, Absolutely. It, just a matter of clarification. I didn't just watch The Karate Kid and think I'm going to move to Japan. It, it was actually a series of events like it, it. This is how 80s pop culture influenced me. So I did love that movie as a kid. Right. Obviously, I love the, the kind of premise of like this uh not the strongest guy you know uh and he's getting bullied around and so he learns karate and he can and he learns how to defend himself so like that led i'm, I'm telling i'm just going to give you this the chain of events that like why i i'm a 46 year old man living in japan now so the karate kid influenced me like okay i want to take karate well I, I wound up taking aikido and judo because that was what was available to me uh like in high school and, you know, I was okay at it. Then that, like when you're doing your reps, when you're doing your kata or whatever, you learn how to count 
it, just to 10 in Japanese, you know, just each and san, chi. And then, so <clears throat> I go to college, University of Alabama, you know, it's a big university. You can minor and just, you could minor in Swahili if you wanted. Uh, so I minored in Japanese, which was not a wise choice. All I could do was count to 10 and say konnichiwa. But anyway, I minored in Japanese. That led to me, my first job out of college was teaching English in Japan. I come here, you fall in love with the culture and maybe fall in love with the women. And, and uh, long story short, like here I am, I'm married to a Japanese woman and I live in Japan. All of it started with the Karate Kid. <laughs> yeah. That's 80s pop culture for you. I mean, it's, it's that influential. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And uh, you know, your journey is incredible and um, it's really cool. And the fact that it's influenced by, you know, in some ways by, by an 80s movie, um, it goes to show what I talk about with 80s pop culture and how, you know, people say, how is it still resonating? You know, 42, we're 42 years removed from 1980. <laughs> I, I, know, look at my, I look at my wife and I hear a Peter Cetera song. <laughs> yeah. The glory of love or yeah, yeah right. the best around. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, uh, I actually, so, you know, nostalgia is supposed to come in around 30 year cycles, but here we are 42 years removed from 1980 and 80s pop culture, the influence is only getting bigger. And, yeah. and it's resonating even more with younger generations, which is awesome. Uh, I think part of it, the way I explain it is 80s pop culture was kind of like somebody took a glitter bomb and threw it against the wall and all these like beautiful colors came out, this variety of colors. And that's mm. 80s pop culture. There was so much happening. There was so much going on, so much experimentation. And if you look at like, uh, for example, take top, I challenge anybody, I always do this, Google the top 40 at any point in the 80s. So just say top 40 music, uh, April, first week in April, 1984. Right. And look at the top 20, the top 10. You're going to see Kenny Rogers next to <laughs> LO Cool J, next to Depeche Mode, <laughs> next to Debbie Gibson. And then we'll throw in like a, I don't know, Motley Crue and a Christopher Cross. <laughs> that, that was the diversity that was happening in music and 80s pop culture because it was becoming accessible to everybody. And anyone was actually able to record or film a movie. This was the first time that was happening. And that's the thing. You know what? I love every one of those that you just mentioned. Like I could listen to yeah. that mix and I would be fine. And, and I, that doesn't exist in any other decade in my lifetime. Cause you know, either you like this and you hate this or what, but it was like, it was all cool. It was all good. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I like in that 1980s to like the 1920s, like this, this era of, just i don't know joyous uh abundance and you know frivolity <laughs> well there was a, there was a you know I, I say that also it was the last decade where pop culture wasn't manufactured and packaged uh, and good so point. you know in the early to mid 90s there was still a lot of experimentation going on but once you got past there and, and it was really the 80s suddenly it was like we're, we're investing all this money in this pop star and this music and this movie and this whatever it is and we need to make our money back yeah. And so we're going to pound you over the head until you like this. And in the eighties, it was more like, Hey, we're going to throw it out there. You tell us what you like and we'll make more of it. And mm -hmm. that's why you saw these genres explode. Hip hop's a great example. I mean, hip hop went from, you know, uh, maybe like grandmaster flash. Uh, there was, you know, two or three, uh, kind of hip hop artists in the late seventies. And then it just exploded in the eighties and it splintered into all these different genres. There were six or seven different genres 
of hip hop. That doesn't happen in any other decade. And that's why I think it really just, again, you said going down the rabbit hole, it's very easy to go down the rabbit hole of 80s pop culture. Mm. And then you take that and you say, what can we learn from it beyond just being entertained by it? Mm. Is there something deeper in the 80s pop culture? And there is, and that's that's what I think I've found. Uh, So kind of going back to the Karate Kid. You asked about the Karate Kid and Mr. Miyagi, and we and most people know the whole wax on, wax off, and this is what when you say Karate Kid, that's usually the first thing that comes to mind for people. Maybe get him a body bag. That's just like a which was a throw, <laughs> throw which was a line that was kind of thrown in in the last second, by the way. Yeah. Um, so I talk about Mr. Miyagi in that scene where he's you know showing Daniel the chores and he's ultimately teaching him karate, but also discipline. Mm. And he says, uh, "Don't forget to breathe. Very important." <laughs> that's. I say it every show almost. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, so, I end my show that way. Oh, you do? Okay. Yes, well, so great. So we have something similar here. I have an entire lesson on this idea of don't forget to breathe very important. And I, th- I talk about it in our personal life and also in our, in our careers. And they obviously intersect our personal and our work life come together often. But it's this idea that, that you know, str- about stress mm-hmm. and that stress is like dehydration. Once you realize you have it, it's too late. And if you've ever had dehydration, you know what I'm talking about that you all through that day, you do things that creates this, this eventual dehydration and dehydration is awful. If you've ever had it about of it, you feel like you're going to die. And uh, stress is the same thing. All these different things you do during the day and they build, 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 build. And then suddenly it just explodes in whatever way it does. And that's, you know, that's stress. That's what stress does. They're very similar. It's so important to breathe. And that can be taking a break to walk your dog, play with your kids, go to the gym, have a cup of tea, do some yoga, whatever it is, whatever you define as breathing. Mm. And it's more important for leaders in the workplace, A, for them to take time to breathe, because we talk about how shit rolls downhill. And when shit rolls downhill, it's pretty bad. Well, stress rolls downhill and it's even worse. And so leaders have to take time to breathe and they have to let their team members know you have time to breathe. And I don't mean taking a break when, you know, for lunch or whatever, right. I mean, if you're feeling it. It doesn't matter. Take that step back and take that time to breathe. Nice. Well, tell us, uh, while well, we got a, a few more minutes, tell us yeah. about the third book, the one that's coming out on September 27th. You know, again, you don't have to give away any spoilers, but what can we expect? What's new? Yeah. So what's new is that I'm going to focus on life lessons instead of business lessons, which was a lot of fun to write. And, uh, you know, because with the business lessons, there's um, a little more thinking that goes into it. And I don't like to think. So with the life <laughs> lessons, it was a little bit easier to, to kind of come up with them. And so I'm really excited about this one because of that. Uh, the movies are a lot of fun. And I may introduce people to movies that they had heard of in the 80s, but maybe they saw once, maybe they, they haven't seen for a while. So movies like Can't Buy Me Love, which is one of my favorites, sure. great romantic comedy, introduces us to Pat- Patrick Dempsey. Dempsey. Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> who, who went from like the, the nerd mowing lawns to Dr. McDreamy. So yeah, yeah. I guess anything is possible, right? That's actually um, what was funny to me about when he was so, you know, he's such a big deal on Grey's Anatomy. I was like, I remember him back when he's a nerd mowing lawns on Can't Buy Me Love, you know? So, yeah, yeah, anyway. that's right. And, and also Loverboy when he was delivering yeah. the beaches. So. Yes. <laughs> Another terrific movie. Another great movie. Yeah. yeah. Only in the 80s could these movies be made, by the way. And that, right. that's why I like to talk about them, because they'll, they'll never be able to make them again like that. Mm-hmm. And so um, and I, I mean that just because the stories are just we're, we're we're too complex now. And those were just really simple kind of fun stories. 
And so uh, you have you have Can't Buy Me Love, Roadhouse, which is one of my favorites, oh, a cult yeah. classic. Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge Patrick Swayze fan. I I really. I I, um, I named my dog actually my rescue is named uh, Bodie after his <laughs> character from uh, Point Break. Break. Yeah, not an '80s movie, but a great yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, so you have Roadhouse, you have Can't Buy Me Love, you have Trading Places, which you actually mentioned earlier. Mm. Um, Field of Dreams. I revisit The Breakfast Club. Uh, mm. I give The Breakfast Club a lot more time in this book than I did in the first one because it deserves it. And I t- yeah. actually took every character, and every character in The Breakfast Club has a lesson, including Carl the janitor. Of course. So, <laughs> awesome. um, yeah. And if there's a lot more of, uh, my story in this book as well, um, I, I, a lot of things that kind of happened over the past year and a half for me that I bring into some of the stories that relate to, um, timeframes relate to, to, to some of the quotes and some of the lessons that we're going to talk about as well. Mm-hmm. Um, also just some more fun, stupid things that I did as a kid that I think are fun to, to, to share. So, Awesome. Well, where should people go to follow you? And there's chrisclues.com. I'm going to put all this in the, in the show notes in the, uh, for when uh, people listen to the show. Uh, and I'll, I'll link the first two books. Uh, how can they follow you on social media or whatever to keep up with you and keep up when the, the release of the third book? Yeah, I appreciate that. So uh, on social media, believe it or not, I've had uh, the Twitter handle I was able to get at 80s pop culture. I couldn't believe that that was available. At 80s pop culture. Okay. Yeah. Now, I'm not as active on Twitter as I am on some of the other uh, social media. So Instagram, I'm very active at Chris Clues 80s. Uh, and then Chris Clues on Facebook and Chris Clues on LinkedIn. Those are my main, uh, that's my main social media. You- YouTube as well. I have a YouTube channel as well under Chris Clues, speaker and author. And uh, my website really is where you can get most of the information and most of the media. If the they go, In fact, if they go to chrisclues.com, can they find all those other things? Yes, they can. And okay. uh, also my books as well as um, you can see uh, video from my speaking gigs as well. So if you're looking for a fun, unique keynote speaker for your conference event or meeting, uh, that's where you can find me as well. Uh, I'd love to do that. I do it a lot. Um, I have a lot of actually quite a few speaking gigs here coming up in the fall. And I really love being on stage. Uh, I really enjoy it. It's just, um, I I just love it. I love being on stage. I I love uh, the content. I love what I do now with my life. I'm really passionate about it. I'll tell one quick story. When I knew I kind of had something was uh, in, I was in the airport uh, traveling to a speaking gig and um, I was sitting next to a guy and we just started talking and he said, you know, what do you do? And I, I explained to him and he said, he saw my vans. I wear these really funky vans that I designed <laughs> and uh, by design actually, because, you know, if you have like funky shoes on, people sometimes ask about them. And he's like, what are those about? And I said, oh, these are my stage shoes. And he said, stage shoes. And I said, yeah. And I explained him what I did. I said, I you know, I talk about the lessons we can get from 80s pop culture, mainly 80s movies for life in the workplace. And I'm heading to a conference to keynote. And he looked at me and he said, how the hell did you pull that off? <laughs> and I realized at that point that I actually had a job that other yeah. people wanted. And that was like for the first time in my life. And that was a really cool moment for me. That's awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate your time and sharing your story. And uh, so folks um, for listening, go buy the books. By the third installment on September 27th. I'll put the links in the show notes so you can find it. Do that first. Go buy all three books. And then if you got three bucks left over, go visit patreon.com slash Zen Sandwich and support this show. Yeah. Uh, when, when you do, I'll send you a handmade postcard on traditional Japanese paper that's called washi. That's what uh, my wife and I do here in Japan. I'll send it to, her, to you wherever you are in the world. Give you a shout out on the show. Chris Clues, awesome stuff, man. I could talk 80s for hours. 
thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. Again, I really appreciate the megaphone. Uh, and by the way, I just want to mention that you can pre-order this the third book right now, Raised on the 80s, and you'll get 25% off the retail price when it launches on September 27th. Sweet. Do that, folks. Thanks, Thanks. Mark. Stay Thanks. rad, everybody. Thanks, Chris. <laughs>